Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontufrag. Today is a special day for me, at least. I'm a bit selfish. Uh, we're welcoming Ranjay Galati, who is the Paul R. Lawrence MBA class of 1942 professor of business administration and the former unit head of the Organizational Behavior Unit at Harvard Business School. He's an expert on leadership, that is for sure, in turbulent times and other ways. Uh, he's having studied and written about the topic for the past 25 years. Gladi has served for almost a decade as chair of the Advanced Management Program, AMP, as some people might know it as, Harvard, at Harvard Business School's premier leadership development program. Uh, Gladi holds a PhD from Harvard University, a master's degree in management from MIT Sloan uh, School of Management, two bachelor degrees in computer science and economics from Washington State University and St. Stephen's College, New Delhi, respectively. Ranjay advises and speaks to corporations large and small around the globe. He's frequently leading small group workshops focused on helping leadership teams of high growth companies enhance the growth trajectory of their businesses. Now, Ranjay's here today because we're going to talk about his latest book, This Deep Purpose, The Heart and Soul of High Performance Companies, which shows how companies can embed purpose much more deeply than they currently do, delivering impressive performance benefits that reward customers, suppliers, employees, shareholders, and communities alike. Uh, it's a great honor today to have you here, Ranjay. Um, let me start first. Uh, wow. Uh, I was uh, First of all, I wish I wrote this book. Uh, I know that I've written a book about purpose, but you have done things with kind of where purpose is at in ways that, as I say, I wish I could have. I think what I wanted to do, if it's okay with you, is maybe um, maybe tell us a bit about what got you into writing and, and researching uh, about purpose and to put forward what you do portray here in terms of the deep purpose operating principles of the book itself. So let's start there and we'll get into your typology. Yeah. So, you know, if then, uh, thank you so much for having me on this show with you. I'm delighted to have a chance to talk to you. And we are, I, I really think of us as kindred spirits because I found your work to be hugely, hugely influential and important for me as I started to research this topic. So I am very grateful for your written work and now a chance to speak with you. Um, let me tell you, if you five years ago, if you told me, Ranjay, you're going to write a book about purpose, I'd say you're crazy. Not a chance, you know? <laughs> I mean, to me, especially company purpose, you know, individual purpose I get, but company purpose was like mission statements. It was like just, you know, wallpaper. Who cares? No one pays attention to that. I mean, I was really a person who studied strategy and strategy implementation, mm. strategy formulation, strategy implementation. And I felt I had big unlock. Companies need to, if they want to grow in good times or bad, they have to formulate a strategy and then implement the strategy. And if you get it right or wrong, you adjust, you pivot, that was it. I never thought of purpose as a kind of another unlock into business, mm. that this was something that was really profound and actually could help you both shape your strategy and shape your implementation and could unlock productivity in ways that otherwise are unimaginable. And there was hints of ideas there. There was a IMD study where they looked at 28 high growth companies to see what were the common themes across them. Mm. And one of the three things they found was purpose. Uh, I did a study of about 65 fast growth startups. And I was talking to founders of startups, small companies. And I was asking them, what's so special about when you scale? What are you worried about losing? And they talked about purpose. They call it intent or various languages. So I kind of was hovering around the idea that somehow in small companies, purpose matters. And then, um, and 
I'd seen it in my own mother's business as well, which grew really fast that I talk about in the book. But it was really a conversation with Satya Nadella that I saw how large companies at scale also can leverage purpose in some fundamental ways that drives performance. So let me be very clear. For me, the study was always about unlocking performance of companies defined as top line, bottom line growth, short term and long term growth. So that's what the and I and I was realizing that purpose could be an unlock into this. Now I wanted to call the book purpose uh, because I was told by people that you know one word titles sell better. So you know <laughs> one word easier, simpler. Maybe I'll do a one word title. I couldn't. Yeah. Because there were so many companies practicing what I end up calling superficial or shallow purpose, um, that I had to call it deep purpose. Purpose only unlocks value when you really go deep with it. When you really try to, and that's why the companies I found were really, um, as one observer I talked to recently said, you know what, we are on the cusp of something, but we are not quite there yet. So if I told you deep purpose is mainstream, no. I think only some companies are doing it and they're unlocking tremendous value. Others, there's just too much purpose confusion. They think of purpose as a tax on business, purpose is CSR, purpose is ESG, you know, um, and so I think the confusion around it, I hope the idea here is to try to clarify a bit about this. Well, and I, first of all, uh, you in the book, you've called out not just Microsoft, but some really good examples, right, of those transformative kind of leaders and, and C-suite saying, look, you know, let's not just do purpose washing. Let's not just put out a declaration of organizational purpose. Let's do something about it with our behavior and what I love is your typology, because you're calling out the need for organizations still to remember that they have commercial logic or commercial value to, to bring forth, but they might be able to do so with a social purpose or a purpose logic, if you will. And that's why I'll show it here. This, this typology, I think, is quite good. Uh, I think it's the thing that I'm most jealous of that you've come up with. And so what, what I see in the two by two matrix essentially is that, you know, you're, you're calling out organizations whom are sort of, uh, I guess, you know, from a profit first perspective, they'll use their decision making of the need for EBITDA or to appease the shareholders or the analysts to kind of like, just like almost be resolute when it comes to um, what their, um, what their organization stands for, as opposed to you know, your top right quadrant where ultimately you're saying, look, you can have purpose with profit. Now, the other two, the underachiever box when there's nothing happening or the, the good Samaritan box on the bottom uh, right of the matrix where it's all kind of purpose or all social, I should say. That, that, I think, to me, is a typology that many organizations should be able to use as a decision-making matrix. So tell us how you came to this and if it's something that other organizations could use as a litmus test. So... Uh, thank you for taking note of that. Uh, that was a long, it took me a while to get to that two by two. Um, I want to go a step back from it. Okay. There's a body of work that dates back a, a while, actually, the work by a colleague of mine, Willie Ocasio at University of Illinois, uh, on logic of appropriateness, logic for action. Uh, Rosabeth Moscanter wrote about it as well, about social logic and com commercial logic. Right. And the argument was that what drives the behavior of companies? And I think is what happened over time is that we've gone to what you might call a commercial logic, kind of under the Milton Friedman doctrine or shareholder value, whatever you want to call it, that businesses should optimize on one dimension. And the other dimensions were kind of ignored or ignored. 
you know, and so it was do no harm, do mm. no evil, you know, stay within the law, right? So externalities were not like fully understood. We were not aiming for positive, we call them externalities or spillovers of the company. Any byproducts were like, do no evil, do no harm, don't, don't break the law, right? The idea that business can actually have a positive byproduct of whatever they are doing to the, on their communities, on the planet, on even their customers or even their employees was kind of relegated. Mm-hmm. The firm was a nexus of contracts operating within the confines of the law designed to optimize value for shareholders. And, and I think is what you come to realize is that there is also a social logic and many companies recognize that. It used to be the case 50, 100 years ago. Businesses were much more explicit and deliberate about the social logic. In fact, to get a, a license to operate in British, in, in colonial England, you know, you had to demonstrate a social logic for the business. You couldn't just say we're here to make money. Right. So I think that was one piece of the puzzle. The other one that really confused me, uh, which I tried to clarify through this two by two, was the idea around purpose is win-win. Now, people on the left criticize win-win saying it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. They actually call it dangerous because that is saying you're giving business a free uh, ticket saying, you only have to do good when it's good for you. Right. So I only have to do social stuff when it's good for me. I can make money doing it. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. So that's a very limiting box. So the question then was that what happens in business? And I realized that for most people, business is a messy affair. Everything doesn't fall into win-win or shared value or whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah. There are some things that have social logics, but limited commercial logic something that have commercial logics that have limited social logics. And the reality is most businesses operate in those quadrants, mm. at least those three quadrants. Right. And so if you're Pepsi, you're still selling cola and you're still selling chips, but you're trying to sell oatmeal too, right? And, and so you know, you're trying to say I have a commercial logic or profit first, but I'm trying to, and then I'm, if I'm, Indra Nui, I'm trying to you reduce the salt content and the sugar content. I'm trying to move to the right from the top left quadrant, right? Similarly, you know, the Walmart CEO came to HBS about a decade or so ago. And, you know, he had just come from Hurricane Katrina and said, like, look, we realize global warming is real. We got to do something. We're going to put solar panels on our, uh, I've announced that. And, you know, it's economically not viable, but we're going to do it and we'll find a way to make it viable or something. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go social first, commercial will follow. We'll find some way to do it. And sure enough, they did find a way to make it commercially viable over a few years. So the idea here was that businesses in reality operate in those three, the low, low, nobody does, hopefully. (laughs) Some are profit first, some are good Samaritan first. And you're trying to work your way to purpose with profit, but the life is not perfect. I give an example of Gotham Green Yes, an agro farming company. And, you know, they uh, pride themselves in being eco-friendly. They're on urban rooftops, uh, reduce waste and all that other good stuff. Water usage is very limited. Uh, pesticide usage, almost non-existent, etc. And But they had a big problem. Packaging. And they had to use plastic. Because that's the only material till today that actually keeps these things fresh long enough. So I just wanted to capture, I wrote an article just recently in HBR, Harvard Business Review called The Messiness of Purpose. And this two by two is really part of that messiness. One of the things you, you call out in the book, which I love using the typology, I suppose, right, is 
are organizations that 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 are using it as a decision-making matrix to change the way in which they operate their business, thus to become one with purpose, with profit. So what you do a really good job of, and um, probably giving you academic license in which to do so, is to call out Facebook and almost in comparison, uh, highlight Bueller Holdings, the Swiss you know, plant equipment manufacturer. And you kind of do this juxtaposition, juxtaposition in the book where you're like, hey, Facebook, you know, why are you stuck in the top left quadrant, if you will? You could be making decisions that help all of us in different ways. And then you kind of point out to, if not Facebook, but the reader, like, uh, look at Bueller. Um, they're a company that did just that, and they make plant equipment, basically. And so tell me a bit about that almost AB that you're doing in the book, but almost <clears throat> hidden is the typology as you're going through it. So, you know, Dan, criticizing individual companies doesn't come easy to me because, you know, I'm doing it not always with 100% all information, but I did the best I could. And that was an example of what I did. I felt compelled to because I was doing a thought experiment in my own head. Imagine if Facebook had actually lived up to the purpose they claimed in 2016. How would their employees have reacted to this? Mm -hmm. How would their customers have responded to this? How would the communities in which they live operate if, think about this? How would the ecosystem of partners relate to them? Mm -hmm. Would there be greater value that would have been created for everybody, including their shareholders, if they had just decided to live up to their, their pur purpose? And in, you know, instead they're saying, you know, they made a purpose, they put it out there, but they did nothing with it. Think about it. It was uh, the, the purpose of Facebook as they outlined it was, to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. <laughs> well, and that uh, is... <laughs> it might be, might be a bit of what you and I both call purpose washing, don't you think? And, and, you know, it's unfortunate. So that was a thought experiment in my head that, you know, imagine how much more economic value, commercial value that would have been created mm -hmm. and social value too. What would have been the consequences if they took decisive action for democracy in America and other parts of the world where there have been massive divisions. And instead of saying, well, we don't care, you know, we're just going to optimize our algorithms to get eyeballs in there. Yeah. So I think people, I think there's a, there's a fair amount of skepticism that actually purpose might work. I think people aren't sure. They're not convinced. And that's, I think, a problem we have. We have to overcome is helping the skeptics see value in this. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, what you're doing as well through the Facebook example, and even if it was hypothetical, I agree with you uh, in so much as they could have been something and still can potentially get up to that top white right-hand quadrant that you have here. But with your, with your interviewing and the work you've done with Nadella, Satya Nadella, and of course, Kathleen Hogan, CHRO and Chief People Officer at Microsoft, you can see in 2014 what Nadella was trying to do when he said, let's shift from uh, know-it-alls to learn-it-alls and to act with that sense of purpose organizationally, because we can be better than just top left-hand quadrant profit first. So what's your, uh, I guess, uh, exposition, if you were, discovery of the Microsoft experiment thus far under Nadella? So there's two parts to it. The first thing I learned was that purpose can happen at scale. Uh, but I also learned from them was that Satya said to me, look, first 
first of all, you might look at our case as saying, we built a, we looked at our market changes, the changes in our market. So we built a new strategy. Mm. And once we built our new strategy, then we built an implementation plan to implement our strategy. And to do that, we had to get the culture right, the organization right, the people right, the compensation right. So it was really about a formulate, implement strategy. That goes back to my thinking of, yes, he's right. Textbook, <laughs> that's how I, what I've learned. Right. And then he said, you missed the story if that's all you got. Because there was another unlock we needed to do, which was unlocking our purpose. And I was a little skeptical at first. And I'm like, well, I mean, what do you need that for? I mean, you've got the great strategy. you got the implementation plan to implement the strategy. So why else would you want to do that? And especially because the words were not so inspiring to me. The purpose of Microsoft is to empower every person, every organization on the planet to achieve more. Right. And I'm like, okay, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> and, and his thing was, no, you don't understand. We spent nine months debating the words. So there's a lot of meaning attached to those words. And how we use those words on a daily basis is the key. And without it, we would not have come up with our strategy. Mm. So we needed our purpose. Now, this led me then to address skeptics. I said, okay, I can't do the definitive empirical large sample study in measuring company purpose and at least correlating it with performance, right? Yeah. But I can do something close enough. So what is that close enough going to look like? And so I said, I'm going to find out what are the pathways by which companies like Microsoft leverage their purpose. And I found four pathways. The first pathway by which purpose unlocks value is what I call directional. Clarify mm-hmm. strategy and thinking about where do we do, what do we do, what do we not do, especially in turbulent markets. So the directional benefit. The second one, which is a huge unlock, is motivational. People feel more inspired when they come to work, especially younger generations, right? So there's a motivational and that unlocks value. The third one is reputational. We also know customers seem to care more about companies that stand for something and they trust them more and are more loyal to them. So there's a reputational brand advantage of having purpose. And the last one is relational, mm-hmm. where I found that companies like Bueller, by having a purpose, elicit trust in their community of partners, ecosystem of adjacent players, complementers. And that's what's allowed Bueller to bring a whole industry together. There's going to be a thousand people there this summer from all the entire food industry to talk about the shared understanding of how can we basically have a material impact on sustainability and greenhouse gas emissions where food in, the food industry is a major contributor to the greenhouse gas problems. One of the things is you brought up kind of the benefits of, of deep purpose and, you know, directional, motivational, uh, relational, and reputational uh, in the book. Um, one of the things that I, I kind of was wanting to ask you about was, well, you come up with this really good um, paradox, right? Are, are you a poet or a plumber? And you kind of tie around the, the idea of the big story uh, in the book as, as like an action for leaders and, and senior leaders to take. And I, I'm wondering, does, well, first of all, help us explain or help us understand what you mean by poets versus plumbers as it relates to the big story. And then I guess the follow-up is, can the, can the big story help with those directional, motivational, relational, and reputational aspects? So here's the thing that I discovered was purpose is only as good as what people in the organization believe it is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, especially down on the front line. And one of my colleagues, uh, uh, George Serafim, has convincingly shown that that 
purpose exponentially decays as you go down the hierarchy in an organization. <laughs> so it's a wonderful thing for senior leaders to talk about. But when you go down to people and they're like, my, I'm doing a day job. How does this purpose really connect to me? And does it really mean anything as such? And so the question is, how do you bring it alive? And in that context, I looked at leaders. I said, how do you like get people to understand the purpose? They said, you know what? Communicating purpose is not like communicating a strategy. Hmm. Communicating our reason for being. It's who we are. How do you communicate identity? And this was like what, what, what people call the big story. Like you got to tell it as like, this is our reason for being. This is why we exist in the world. And how do you get that across? And I found that this kind of communicating that strategy in a way that was both rational and emotional. And in that context, I try to speak to leaders who are trying to embed purpose saying, listen, you know, a lot of leaders are plumbers. They know strategy. They know implementation. They know incentive plans. They got all that stuff down. They don't know poetry. Because you need to inspire people. You need to not only inspire them, you're trying to build an emotional connect with them. They should experience work as an emotional connection, not just a rational cognitive connection. And it is that emotional connection that you're trying to build with them. And for that, leaders have to operate like poets, not like just plumbers, okay, task here, task that, task this, task that. They got to sell a story. It has to be a big story. Like we are going to do, and, and in many cases, not all, startup founders are incredible at that because they have to sell the story to get you to come and work for them in the first place. Right. Then they got investors to invest in them also and customers to come on to them. So you see this in most extreme form, but I think it's true in large organizations as well. You know, uh, if you look at some of the examples I talked about, Etsy being one of them, Lego being another one, the CEOs had to sell a story. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote another article about how startups include, uh, today have to talk about big ideas and grand ideals. It's not just ideas, it's ideals as well. Yeah, amazing. Well, you brought up Etsy, and I think that's another one just to explore. I've got a couple other questions for you. But um, on the Etsy front, there's, a, there's one where you you sort of say, hey, look, they were they were operating with purpose. And then you know, some business hiccups occurred and they had to almost double down on their purpose, if you will, in order to survive, which was kind of back to your typology, right? A, a case of, well, what is it that we need to do to ensure commercial value with our social value? So maybe just give us a little hint as to what you discovered on a company that arguably had purpose or is operating with organizational purpose and then, you know, had to almost rethink it and, and continue on. So, uh, you know, I love Etsy. It's a great example and it's a great story. And Josh Silverman has done an amazing job there. What I really liked about that story is I was going in to write an expose about the bad guys. Uh. Because the media spin was, Etsy was a beautiful purpose company. And then, you know, they lost their way and the evil empire took over and they did layoffs <laughs> and they focused on making money. Yeah. at the expense of the purpose. And that was really the media version of the story. And when I came in, I discovered quite to the contrary. And what I made me realize was sometimes some companies use purpose as an excuse not to make money or not to perform well. 
And in, in the old Etsy, it had a deep purpose. Yes, the founders did, and they were really focused on the sellers. But at some point also, the purpose became the employees. So the employees were having a really good time, but nothing was getting done for our customers, you know? And the business was tanking. So it was a one, and then Josh had to come in and reset and calibrate saying, look, we can't just claim to be, we don't even know how much social value we're creating. Right. Right. So it wasn't even clear they were making, delivering on social value. There was unclear what they were doing. And so this social thing becomes kind of sometimes a cover for non-performance on all dimensions. Mm-hmm. And, and what Josh came in and said was like, first of all, we got to get the commercials economics right. Shareholders want returns and shareholders are not greedy, bad people. Shareholders are pensioners, retirees, normal people who want a decent return on their life savings. So we got to deliver returns to them, right? It's somebody else's company, first of all. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, if we're going to do social value, we can't just claim to be doing social value. Let's measure it. So he came up with three things. They were going to have an audited statement of their kind of sustainability reporting along with their financials, saying, let's find the three things we really care about. And let's have measurable impact on those. Mm-hmm. So it was a wonderful story in saying, you know what, commercial and social have to coexist. And by the way, if you're going to do social, you better hold yourself to account on where exactly and how are you delivering that value. You know, um, one of the things that dawned on me with some of the examples that you had uh, in the book of companies and leaders and both, you you sort of towards the near the end of the book, you sort of tar- start talking about or writing about derailers. And you have these four derailers, which I think are quite good. The, uh, the personification paradox, uh, death by inadequate measurement, the do-gooders dilemma, and the purpose strategy split. And so the derailers, I believe, and, and you can uh, chime wisdom on each of these if you, if you want, but I believe in reading your work, the derailers uh, can come at any point, whether you're sort of on the journey towards purpose, you know, uh, like Etsy, something happens in the middle of it. You're like, oh my gosh, what's happening? So give us your take on how you came up, I suppose, with the four derailers. So um, the first ad, you purpose is not like a mountaintop. You can't get to the mountain and declare victory and say, we're done. Now we're <laughs> right. purpose, we're done. Finish. Yeah, <laughs> we, got, we got to the moon, the flag's in there. We're, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I found this in examples that were kind of disturbing and kind of sad to see. One of them was Johnson & Johnson. Mm-hmm. Another was Boeing. Companies that have been iconic companies that, you know, Johnson & Johnson had the credo before anybody else really thought about some of these things. Yeah. And yet you saw them oh, about 20 odd years ago going through a decade of like decline and scandal after scandal after scandal. And it was like, I can't believe this is J&J. <laughs> and, right. and then you say, see the same with Boeing and the 737 Max story. And so my question was, these companies were ostensibly deep purpose companies once upon a time, like what happened? And I realized that purpose is fragile. And so it's, it has to be constantly nurtured. And that led me to kind of study the purpose derailers. I'll just touch on one of them. One of them was the, the whole personification paradox that purpose gets wrapped up in an individual, a person, yeah. usually a founder, but could yeah. be any larger than life CEO. And when they leave, you know, suddenly it's confusion about what is our purpose and what does it mean? I mean, think about Howard Schultz coming back to Starbucks for the third time. Three, three times, I know, it's crazy. <laughs> so, you know, I think what happened, and, and the last time at least when he came back, he said, oh, Starbucks has lost its soul. 
So you see this kind of rhetoric as well. Phil Knight came back to Nike multiple times after trying to leave and come back. But it's not just founders. I think when you have larger than life leaders, take Microsoft as an example. One day when Satya Nadella is going to retire, somebody's going to have to step in some very big shoes. Mm. And this purpose that they have right now is so wound up in Satya. Yeah. How is somebody else going to take ownership of it? And I liked what Kevin Johnson, the previous CEO of Starbucks said, he said, you have to go from founder led to founder inspired. And this doesn't naturally happen easily. So that's just one example of a derailer. The measurement was another one, you know, and then I had two others. So the larger theme is that, you know what, you have to stay with it. You can't let your eye off the ball. My, uh, I, I agree. And I, what I do love is how Sadia Nadella also pays homage to Reed Hoffman's point of, you know, how you must refound the company uh, when you inherit uh, something large from a larger than life ego or icon, you know, in the case of uh, Satya Balmer and Bill Gates, of course. And then I think that's where some of that new purpose came from. It's like we refounded Microsoft, quite frankly. And again, uh, it's just a case study of what to do right, I, I argue. Okay, penultimate question, and then we'll find out more where we can find out more about you. Um, so you get on about purpose statements and how you don't want to see purpose statements just be a bunch of words that, uh, you know, they have to have this kind of commercial and social logic uh, that they're the kind of organization's priorities, but that you, you also speak to trade-offs. And that's the key word there I wanted to, to ask you about. So when you're enacting a sense of purpose, you might come up with that pithy one-line statement but you're kind of talking about this notion of where we must look at all stakeholders, not just the profit seekers or EBITDA seekers or analysts and shareholders and so on, but that there are going to be trade-offs. So, so speak to me a little bit uh, about what you mean when you're wrapping up what a purpose statement is, and I guess perhaps the behavior of action towards these trade-offs. What does that mean, so let's think about what is purpose. Okay, there are many, many, thousands of years human beings have debated purpose. Uh, my favorite definition is one by a Stanford psychologist named William Damon. And he said, purpose is a stable and generalized intention to accomplish something that is at the same time meaningful to the self and consequential for the world beyond the self. Mm -hmm. Right? Now, it's a wonderful idea for all of us individuals to think about something meaningful to me and also consequential to the world beyond me. The challenge is how do you translate this for organizations? The first thing I learned was purpose is not a purpose statement. So we kind of wrap our purpose around a purpose statement. It's beyond a purpose statement. It's something that's larger than a purpose statement. It's, it's what you believe in. It's a mm -hmm. general intent. It's the things you do. I mean, I've seen companies that don't have a purpose statement, but are very purposeful. Right. Yeah. Right. And you have others with beautiful statements that don't mean a thing out of it. Yeah. I mean, uh, have you read Theranos' purpose statement? <laughs> or, I mean, or, or Enron's, right? Or, yeah, yeah. or Enron's or anybody else's. I mean, they have beautiful statements. So, you know, in fact, the Financial Times had an article called The Baffling Search for Purpose in Purpose Statements. <laughs> right. And just right. for the record, the Theranos purpose statement was to facilitate the early detection and prevention of disease and empower people everywhere to live their best possible lives. Right? Um, so, you know, purpose is not a statement. Purpose is something larger than just a set of words. I think it's important to understand that, that purpose is, you know, it's, it's ambitious. It has goals. 
right? It has an idealistic cast. It has duties. It's kind of inherently long-term, but it also encompasses and thinks about the short-term deliverables that help you get to the long-term. And when you think long-term, you think about different stakeholders because that's natural. When you imagine long-term, you're going to think about community and planet as well. Mm -hmm. So they become part of your utility function. So I think it's important to understand what purpose is and what is not. And as I said to the issue of trade-offs, I think I've realized that purpose is it's hard because you can't live perfection every day. So you're living in the world of trade-offs where you're saying, okay, I have these shareholders and stakeholders. So in the case of Etsy, Etsy began with a real focus on the sellers because the founder wanted to have a marketplace for sellers like himself of crafts, right? Over time, it drifted into focusing on the employees. The employee experience became so important that they, at the expense of sellers even, yeah. right? And shareholders were irrelevant. Right. So now suddenly you're dealing with that. And along comes Josh saying, no, you know, we got to deliver for shareholders as well as for customers. And our customers are not just the sellers in the marketplace, but also the buyers in the marketplace who really hate us. So got to make it easy for them. Right. And let's not forget the environment and the planet because we want to be in around forever for a long time. And we also have to think about the communities in which we operate. And suddenly employees are up in arms. Saying, but what about me? I'm used to, you know, all these good things. And, you know, you're taking, you're laying off employees and you're giving to shareholders and you're giving to sellers and buyers. So this is the messiness of purpose. And I think leaders have to accept what I call leaning into contradictions. Uh, you can't ignore contradictions. I think that's the beauty is that business is operating in contradictions. So you have to embrace those contradictions. And again, back to your typology, that is in essence the point. It is how do we balance and integrate a social purpose with commercial uh, intent and logic to ultimately uh, profit with purpose? I think that's brilliant, uh, Ranjay. Well, thank you. Well, I'm biased, but thus far, I think it's the best book of 2022. Uh, Ranjay Galati, great to have you here. Where can people find out more about you, the book, and so forth? Well, the easiest place to find me is on LinkedIn. Uh, just my name, Ranjay Gulati, but I also have a website for the book where I put some CEO interviews I did. So if you want to see videos and audio files of me talking to CEOs about deep purpose, you can go to deeppurpose.net and you can find a, a whole host of material over there, or you can find me on my own website, ranjaygulati.com. Um, so three places where you may go, uh, and I hope you will read it and spread the word about the idea that purpose and profit can go together. Thank you so much for having me today, Dan. I, could, I couldn't put it down. I mean, again, I'm uh, biased, but uh, what an excellent, excellent book. Uh, and I look forward to whatever conversation we might have next. Uh, again, Ranjay, it's just a pleasure today to have you here uh, and uh, look forward to the next one. Thank you so much.